what a day it is uh, to be in the Lord's house to worship him this morning. Good morning, church. Uh, looking forward to what God is going to do as we spend some time together in John chapter number two. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, flip over to John chapter two. We are, uh, I won't say in the middle, but somewhere at the very beginning of a journey through the gospel of John together as a church. We've been studying through John. We have made it to uh, the second half of John chapter two, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We are embarking on a journey, uh, an invitation that Jesus has issued to come and see and explore his life. And so we're looking forward to doing that over the next several months. So find John chapter two. As you do, I wanna share with you an interesting article that I read this week that uh, talked about things in our life that should be cleaned more often. Things in our life that should be cleaned more often. Now, some of those items that I read about in the article are not as surprising as others, such as uh, your countertops or your bathroom or your underwear. Those are all things uh, that should be cleaned. That's right. I said underwear. You can laugh. All right. I appreciate you faking it for me. Thank you. Um, Obviously, we know there are things like that that need to be cleaned. However, there are other things that might be a little bit more surprising to you that are suggested as things that we should clean more often. I want to give you a few of those that I thought in particular uh, were a little surprising. Uh, you might not think so, and that's okay, but I did. So uh, let me give you a few of those. Uh, the first one is kind of a group. It is uh, your washer and dryer, your dishwasher, your kitchen sink, things that clean other things oftentimes get neglected, so you should clean them more often. I never really uh, thought about the stuff that washes other stuff, but that was kind of high up on the list of things uh, that we should clean more often. Doorknobs were on that list. Um, when I clean around the house, which if you ask my wife is not very often, I can tell you this, uh, I do not often think about wiping down the doorknobs, even though uh, a lot of hands touch uh, the doorknobs at our house. Cell phones is one of the things that needs to get cleaned more often. Obviously that makes sense. It's uh, used a lot. It goes up against your face. You probably spit on it. Whatever the case may be, you should wash your cell phone uh, more often. The remote control. I don't know about you or at your house, but the remote control at my house passes through a lot of different hands. In fact, oftentimes I can't even find where it is at the time that I want it, uh, but I never think about the fact that it should be cleaned. Light switches was on the list. Keys. How often do you clean your keys? Uh, probably not very often if you're like me. However, they get pretty dirty. Keyboard on your computer. I was thinking about this. I use a keyboard almost every day, but I cannot tell you ever uh, that I've cleaned my computer keyboard. The last one was surprising to me. It's your toothbrush. You should clean your toothbrush more often. I never thought about cleaning my toothbrush. It seems like it would uh, be clean since you use it to clean your teeth. But anyway, according to researchers at the University of Manchester in England, they can be breeding grounds for staph and E. coli. So you should sometime today throw your toothbrush in some peroxide for about 15 minutes, then wash it off before the next time you use it, right? There are things in our life that we need to clean more often that maybe we don't think about cleaning. Now, these might be no-brainers to each of you, uh, but they were a little surprising to me. However, I'll confess to you, none of these items are the topic of our discussion this morning. None of them really matter. What does matter is in my study of John chapter 2 this week, I was reminded that the one thing that might need to be cleaned more often is actually me. Now, I'm not talking about taking a bath, although there are probably some of you here this morning that need to do that more. 
Thank you, that one person who started us. I appreciate it. I'm not talking about that though, right? I'm not talking about a bath. What I'm actually talking about is allowing Jesus to cleanse my life of the sin that's in it. I'm talking about my heart before God. I'm talking about being cleansed of any impurity that keeps me from worshiping God with my life as I should. In fact, that's what I think is really taking place in John chapter two. We read a very um, his, historical account of Jesus in the temple and most of you have read it and you've thought about it and it's an interesting account, but what if there is more to it than just what's taking place at the temple some 2000 years ago? What if Jesus is trying to show us that the one thing that really needs to be cleansed is me. Watch this. Look at John chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse number 12, and we're going to read about this account in the life of Jesus. Here's what John writes, starting with John 2, 12. He says, after this, he went to Capernaum. He's talking about Jesus. He went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this is coming right off the end of the wedding feast that we talked about last week in Cana, when Jesus famously turned water into wine. Once that event was over, Jesus took some time with his mother, with his brothers, with his disciples, and eventually they made their way to Capernaum where they stayed for a few days. Now in verse 13, this is where the account gets interesting. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now up to this point, Jesus is interacting in a way that they have probably not seen before. As a matter of fact, we think about Jesus in this meek and mild type of personality when in this moment, uh, his, his wrath, his righteous indignation is seen as he throws out people from the temple. But obviously they were doing things that they shouldn't in the Lord's house. And so it makes a little more sense. Verse 18, John goes on. He says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're a little confused on why Jesus would crack a whip and throw everybody out. And so Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But John lets us in on what's actually happening. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, this morning, will you speak to us through your word? Will you convict us? Will you challenge us? Will you change us that we will live according to your truth? God, this time is yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now listen, this is a very interesting account in the New Testament. In fact, this is not the only time that Jesus cleanses the temple. You may remember it a little bit further down, right before Jesus is about to die. He also goes and celebrates the Passover uh, with other Jews and his own family and his disciples. And when he gets to the temple to celebrate Passover, he finds this chaos once again. And he goes in righteous anger to remind people what God's house was actually there for, what the temple was really supposed to 
to be about. Now listen, I was reading through this account, and there are plenty of historical things that we could bring up, and plenty of references to the Jewish religion and some of the things that Jesus was changing. But really, as I read this, it became much more apparent to me that Jesus might be showing us some things that are quite more personal for each of us in this room this morning. As a matter of fact, there were a few questions that rose to the top as I was processing through this scripture that became extremely convicting for my own life this morning. It is those questions that I want you to see from this account in John chapter 2. Let me show you the first one that really impacted me. The first question was, is worship about you or is worship about God? Is worship about you or is worship about God. If you look back at verse 13, it's clear that Jesus was going to celebrate the Passover of the Jews. He, along with his disciples, maybe his mother, maybe his brothers, whoever else was with him, has made the journey to celebrate the Passover as they would have done so many times before. It shouldn't be surprising to us that Jesus would be found here. As a matter of fact, as a Jew himself and the one who would fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus would certainly practice the celebration of Passover. It is after all, a shadow of him and what he will soon do on the cross. What's interesting is how many times Jesus has celebrated the Passover over the years and to come to this point where he's finally had enough of the mockery of worship that his own people have made it to be. John refers to the Passover differently than any of the other gospel writers. Most of them just consider it the Passover celebration or the Passover feast or just the Passover. There's no explanation needed with the phrase of the Jews. But John puts that little phrase in there. And for me, as I was processing through what Jesus was doing, several questions popped into my mind. Could John have been referring to this as the Passover of the Jews because he was writing to a predominantly Gentile audience who maybe didn't know as much about the Jewish feasts like most of us don't know about the Jewish feasts? But I would say probably at that time they were enough connected with the Jewish religion to know exactly what this major celebration that happened every year would be. So I don't think that's why John uses the phrase Passover of the Jews. Well, could it be that Christians no longer celebrate the Passover feast because Jesus has fulfilled that celebration through his death on the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb. As John the Baptist has already mentioned in John chapter 1, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the lamb of God. Listen, you may not know this, but the Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan. It celebrated the night of the final plague in Egypt when the people of Israel were still slaves. Those who put the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorposts of their house would be spared. The death angel would come to that house, see the blood on the doorpost, on the door, and pass over that house. This is why it got its name known as the Passover. However, those who didn't put the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorposts of their house would not be spared. You probably remember the story. The death angel went in and took the life of the firstborn child of those houses that did not have the blood. In the chaos that ensued on the next morning after so many Egyptians woke up to discover their children dead, the people of Israel went free. It was that blood put on their doors that brought them the ultimate freedom that led them into being God's People Listen, the same way that the blood of the lamb at that first Passover spared the Israelites from death, the blood of Jesus, the true lamb of God, will spare us 
from death. His blood shed on the cross was the payment for our freedom from sin and death, just as the lamb's blood was the freedom for those Israelites. Jesus ultimately fulfilled this once shadow to absolute perfection. So could John just be simply referring to the fact that Jesus is now the lamb of God? So they don't, as Christians, practice this. Instead, it's the Jews who practice this. The Passover of the Jews, maybe. Or could there be a third option? Could it be that John is wanting to separate himself from the Jews since they are the ones, in fact, who killed Jesus? Now, if this is true, it would make a lot of sense on why Jesus shows us in this passage of Scripture that they weren't celebrating Passover as it should be. No, instead, this is the Passover of the Jews, not the Passover of God, but the Passover of the Jews. They've made this celebration something else. They've turned this celebration into something it was never intended to be. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, Jesus shows us this in verse 14. As he gets to the temple, which by the way, that's where you would go to begin the Passover celebration. He gets to the temple and he finds that they're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and there are money changers sitting in the midst of the temple. As they find their way to the temple, the temple, by the way, which is the pride of every Jewish heart, they discover something is not happening the way it should. Now, in their minds, the temple was almost the place itself that they worshiped. It had become to a point where God was being missed because people worshiped the place more than they worshiped the person who is God. A lot of times that still happens in our culture today. People worship a building rather than worshiping a savior. And in this moment, we start to see some of this unfold with what Jesus is doing. That's why the question is so pressing. Is worship about me or is worship about God? Now for them, this temple was incredible. It was built by Herod the Great. Its white marble structure overlaid with gold plates could be seen from far off. As a matter of fact, Herschel Hobbes uh, says this about the temple. He says it looked like a sea of white emblazoned with golden fire. The great historian and Josephus compared it to a snow-covered mountain from the distance. It was grand. It was awesome. It was worshipped by the Jews. Now listen, it was certainly a magnificent sight and something the Jewish people took great pride in. The complex itself was composed of many courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of Israel, and the court of the priests. There was also the holy place and the holy of holies where God's presence rested on the mercy seat. It was in this place that only the priest could go and only once a year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifices for the people. Now it's probably in this outer court, what's known as the court of the Gentiles, where this scene is taking place where Jesus sees these oxen and these sheep and these pigeons and these money changers. Now it's interesting in this moment because Obviously, Gentiles could enter into this court, but they could not go beyond it. There would be signs posted everywhere to warn any foreigners not to go further or they would suffer death. And as they walk in and they begin the process of the Passover celebration, they see all these things being sold. They see all this money being exchanged and Jesus starts having problems with what he sees. Now, what he sees as far as the animals and the money changing is not the issue. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't realize this, but for those who are journeying a long way away to come to the temple to celebrate Passover would much rather just get there and buy the sacrifices that they need. Why travel with all those 
those sacrifices when they could just buy them when they enter into Jerusalem. Also, every male, 20 and older, had to pay an annual temple tax. It was a half shekel. Now, when you got to the temple and you were ready to pay the temple tax, it would be so convenient to have someone there who could exchange whatever currency you had for the actual coin that was only allowed at the temple. You couldn't have some pagan god or some Caesar on your coin. You had to have a Jewish coin, one that would represent God. And so you get there, and here's what happens. You need some animals for your sacrifices to cover your sins and the sins of your family as you celebrate the Passover. You need to pay your temple tax in order to honor God and to provide for his people, but yet you don't have the right money to exchange. And so you get there, and all these conveniences are laid out for you. That's not what's wrong. What's wrong is where it's taking place. You see, the place in which they would come to worship has now found itself as a place of commerce. They took a service and they made it sinful. They took a service and they made it selfish. The temple had become much more about wealth than it had been about worship. In fact, historian Josephus estimates close to three million people being in Jerusalem at Passover. At least 250,000 men who had to bring a sacrifice to the temple and pay the temple tax. Now, this is compared to the 50,000 or 75,000 normal population of Jerusalem. There was a lot of money to be made. You say, Danny, why are you telling us all this? Because in Jesus's context, the temple had become more like a flea market than it was a place of worship. Matter of fact, listen to what D.A. Carson writes to set this scene as Jesus walks up. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. In fact, even the Jews themselves despised worship at the Passover in the temple. If the Jews themselves despised it, how much more would a Gentile coming to the court of Gentiles for prayer and worship also not be driven away from worshiping God? It's obvious why Jesus would be so angry in this moment. The reason he's so angry is because they've made it about them instead of about God. Now, I want you to catch this. In fact, listen to me. The Passover celebration was immediately followed by a seven-day festival known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Leaven was a symbol of sin, so here's what would take place. They would rid their houses of leaven in order to symbolize a cleansing of sin from their own lives. John Phillips puts this into perspective when he wrote, on the Passover Eve, the head of each house had carefully gathered up all leaven in the house and removed it, giving the house a good, what we would say, spring cleaning. Yet, after all that's happened in their own homes, no one gave a thought to cleansing God's house. Now listen, I'm reading this and I'm soaking in this moment of what Jesus was doing and I thought to myself, how many of us this morning fit into this description from John? How many of us, like these Jews, have made worship of God something that it's not? How often is this me? How often have I made worship about myself? How often have I made worship less about God and what he desires and more about me and what I desire? In fact, friends, listen to this. If Jesus stepped into my personal worship, which he does, what would he find? Would he find a heart that's chasing after him? 
Would he find a group of people who didn't enter this building this morning because they have to, or because it's the norm, or because this is what we do every single week? Or would he find people who came into this building knowing that they were going to meet with a living God, knowing that the purpose here was to lift up him above everything else? Would he find a people who are genuinely after his own heart? Or when he looks inside of Danny Boudreaux's life, would he find a person who is trying to make worship about themselves? Rather than his glory and his praise, have I made worship about my goodness and my preferences? Is worship about me or is worship about God? Now, I want you to just let that settle for a moment because that's what's happening in this setting. Yes, they had oxen. Yes, they had sheep. Yes, they had pigeons. Yes, they had money change. Yeah, we don't have any of that. I'm with you. But the grand picture that Jesus is trying to help us see is that they had transformed the worship of God into something that better fit their agenda, their pocketbooks, their wealth. They had turned something meant for honoring the creator of the universe into something that benefited them personally. Friends, is our worship about him or is our worship about us? Let me show you the second question. I need to go faster. Not only did I think to myself, is worship about me or is it about God? But secondly, I thought, what is Jesus wanting to cleanse in my life? Like that's what's going through my mind as I'm reading this. Clearly in the context of this scripture, Jesus cleanses the temple. It's not being done like it's supposed to be done. How many of us have had that kind of conviction that's set into our own lives? Anybody? Am I alone? Surely you have, right? How many times has Jesus had to convict your life and say, I got to clean some stuff up in you. You're not living for me like you're supposed to be living for me. How many times, like a whip in his hand, has he convicted the sin in your life and in mine? That's what's happening in this moment in the text. John reminds us, Jesus makes a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out all of the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Friends, he is angry in this moment, not because he hates any of those people, but because he loves God and cannot handle what they've made worship out to be. The same is true for us, by the way. Jesus displays his wrath, his righteous indignation because of his love for God. The motivation is love for God behind the anger he expresses in this moment. I would do the same thing. Matter of fact, I read this comparison and I thought how much it would resonate with our hearts. I could declare my undying affection for my wife, but if you saw me sit back and yawn while someone hurt her, would you believe that I loved her? My love for her would be manifested by the anger I displayed at what was harming her. Is this not the same attitude that Jesus has in this moment? This moment is a reflection of the religion of the nation. It's a reflection of how far they've gone from actually worshiping God. Friends, what about us? Look into your own life for a moment. What have you made worship to be? Is it, is it all about Jesus or is something else happening. Matter of fact, here Jesus says, my father's house, you've made it to be a house of trade. But in other gospel accounts, later when he cleanses the temple, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. 
I love this description of what's happening here. I read this in a commentary this week. Listen to these words. God isn't confined to the temple, but the temple is a special place where he would meet with people. In this house, men would come to worship him and sacrifices were offered to him. This house was built to display his glory, but the sounds of confession have been replaced with the sounds of commerce. Gone are silent prayers to God. They have been exchanged for the angry chorus of men haggling over the price of bulls and sheep. The cooing of doves and the stink of manure now occupy the place that used to be reserved for men to humble themselves and worship God. Jesus levels a charge, but the charge is not unethical practices. They have twisted the purpose of the temple. Jesus is denouncing impure worship. The holiness and gravity of worship have been lost. People have forgotten why they come to the temple in the first place. You know what I love about this moment? That's such a great reminder for me, for us. The first cleansing that we see from Jesus is inside the church, not outside of it. He looks at his own people, his own nation, and he says, what is happening with you? What is Jesus wanting to cleanse in you this morning? Matter of fact, in that moment, the disciples remember what was written, that zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is looking for genuine worship. But watch verse 18. I want you to see this because this is where it becomes apparent to me that sometimes the question we have to ask is what is Jesus wanting to cleanse in my life? So the Jews said to him, this whole scene is taking place. Jesus in a sense has lost his mind. He has made a whip. By the way, can you imagine that moment? He's stringing together a whip, what his disciples are thinking, right? Like, hey Jesus, what you, what you got over there? Oh, I'm making a whip. Oh, he's, hey, he's making a whip. Y'all, this is what's, okay, cool, what, what you gonna do with it? I'm gonna run around the temple complex whipping it at people till they get out of here because they're dishonoring God. Oh, this is gonna be weird, right? Like all that is, tables have been flipped. Money is rolling around everywhere. Who knows what else is flinging all over the place with these animals running around, right? All in the midst of the temple. And the Jews get outside and Jesus has made his way out and they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now listen, the question in and of itself is not bad. Not everybody had the authority to run people out of the temple. As a matter of fact, there were only three people who could control what happened in the temple. There was the Jewish uh, religious leaders or the priests who had authority. There were, the, there were prophets and then there was the Messiah. So in a sense, they're asking Jesus, who are you? Where do you get this authority from? We need a sign. We need you to prove to us that you are sent from God. They do this earlier in John chapter one with John the Baptist. They'll do this later, as Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, always needing a sign for Jesus to prove himself. But as I'm reading through this moment and I hear this question, of all the things that I would have asked in this moment, of all the things that I'm seeing happen, this is not the question I'm asking. I'm not wondering what the sign is. I'm not wanting Jesus to prove himself to me. All I can think in this moment is why do they never ask the question, why did you cleanse the temple? Why did they never look around and go, wait a second, we've got poop everywhere on the ground. We've got coins rolling around. We got tables flipped over. We've got animals running around in Jerusalem. What in the world have we made the temple out to be? Why is their question never, what have we done? 
Why in that moment when Jesus cracks the whip? Why in that moment when Jesus calls them out on their sin? Why in that moment when they're convicted over what they've done wrong for years and years and years? Why do they throw up their fists demanding a sign for Jesus to prove himself? Should not their response in that moment have been to fall on their face and say, Oh God, what have we made this thing to be? But they don't. Instead, they put up another barrier. Instead, their hearts get harder. Instead of experiencing conviction and asking for the Lord's forgiveness, they double down, thinking that they're better, thinking that they're right, thinking that they've got everything as it should be. And I'm reading that in that moment in verse 18, and all I can think about is this, is Jesus wanting to cleanse me. My question should not be, why do you have the authority or who are you to do this? When Jesus points out sin in my life, it should never be to look at someone else. It should never be to make an excuse. It should never be to try to, uh, uh, to, to, to make everything in my own life right or to give Jesus an excuse that makes it okay to, to do what I'm doing. That should never be my response. Instead, if Jesus has to do that kind of cleansing in my life, the question that should come from me is, why has it taken so long? long. Maybe, maybe Jesus is wanting to cleanse something in you and me. What if Jesus looked at your life today? What would he want to drive out? What would he want to throw out? What is he wanting to cleanse in you? Now, let me help you see this in the big picture. You ready? Why, Danny? Why is this so significant that, you know, we put ourselves before God? Why is it so significant that maybe Jesus is wanting to cleanse some things in us? Well, here's why. The third question. What if God is showing us he dwells in bodies, not buildings? What if the entire picture is Jesus helping us understand that that temple, that building, that wasn't really where God's presence was going to remain? Sure, it was there at one point in time. Yes, in the beginning, that's how he met with his people. But what if Jesus is really giving us a picture that it's not buildings that God wants to dwell in, it's bodies. Do you understand what's happening here? What if Jesus is helping us see that that building of the temple, it's going away? Why? Because the presence of God wants to live in you and me. What if Jesus is showing us through his body, that's the temple, that we will become the temple of God? Friends, think about what Jesus does in this moment when he turns all of this stuff upside down. If he would be that angry about a building and what they had turned it into, how much more will he be angry at the sin in our lives when we allow his temple, our bodies, to become something they should not be? Jesus says to them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's not talking about a building. He's talking about his body. Why? Well, understanding Jesus's comparison of his body to the temple has two great connections for us. Number one, the temple is where God would meet with his people, but now through Jesus, God would meet with his people in a way they could never imagine. He would meet with them through Jesus. 
Secondly, the temples where sacrifices would be made to God for the sins of people. Jesus' body would become the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all people. Never another sacrifice would have to be made. This is why Paul wrote in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, listen to this, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus would be slain so that the world could be brought back to God. They miss it, right? How can you take something? Man, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? Listen, what Jesus claimed wasn't just absurd to them. It was offensive. But John lets us in on the little note, right? The little secret. Jesus isn't talking about that building. Matter of fact, shortly after this, that building will be destroyed and it will never come back again until later. But Jesus isn't talking about that building. He's talking about himself. Listen, the temple was a benefit for the people of God. They could see God's presence and be challenged and comforted and convicted and motivated to worship the one and only God. The temple was built to house the Shekinah glory of God. This was the light coming from the burning bush to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. This was the pillar that led the people of Israel while they passed through the desert in Exodus chapter 13. This was the fire that rested on Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19. And then that glory, that presence now rested on the mercy seat in the tabernacle and then in the temple and the Holy of Holies. However, listen, through the years, through the years of disobedience, God had long drawn his presence from the temple. He never left his people. He continued to guide them, but their worship was in vain. God never desired all their rituals. He desired a people after him. Friends, this is why Jesus has come. He has come to bring that Shekinah glory, that presence of God back. This is why John has already wrote in John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled like a temple among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had come to now reveal the glory of God that had long left the temple. He was the temple. He was the dwelling place of God, come to walk among men. Listen, his disciples may not have even realized it at the time, but Jesus is, Jesus is helping us see that he isn't looking for buildings to dwell. He's looking for bodies. God's temple was once the tabernacle and then the temple, but now God dwells within his people. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Here's what Paul wrote. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, God knows everything about you more than you even know about yourself. He is desiring from you genuine worship of him. He doesn't care about a building. He doesn't care about the rituals. He is not impressed by whatever it is we try to throw his way. He is looking for people who are after himself. It, it, could it be that God is trying to scream to us today, I don't live 
in buildings. I live in people. Could it be that he's screaming to us today, the tables in that building is not what he's wanting to turn over. The animals in that building is not what he's trying to run off. Could it be that he's showing us that there's some things in our own lives, in our own heart that need to be cleaned up today? Friend, is worship about you or about God? Because he longs to live through you. He longs to portray his glory to the world, not through a building, but through a people. That's you and that's me. As a matter of fact, I love how John wraps this up. Let me read it to you really quick. We're, we're getting there, I promise. Look at the end of John chapter 2, verse 23. Watch this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is Jesus still, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But watch this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Friend, listen, you can hide everything from me and everyone around you, but you cannot hide it from Jesus. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you look like. He knows what's going on in your heart, in your life. He knows what needs to be cleaned up. He's showing it to you. Will you allow him to clean the mess? turn over the tables, run out the animals? Will you allow him to bring worship back to the one who actually matters? Listen, I was reading this week and I came across an old interview with Matt Redman. It was talking about the story behind the song that he wrote in the late 90s called The Heart of Worship. You've probably heard it, sang it, you probably know the words. What you may not know is that the song was written, it was birthed out of a time in which his home church was going through when they lost their focus on worship. The pastor of his home church decided to do away with the sound system and the band for a season. He wanted to strip everything away so the church could simply focus on Jesus. One day, everybody walks into the church and the pastor doesn't even have a sermon ready. Instead, he stands up on the stage. There's no music, there's no praise and worship, there's no cute intro video, there's none of that stuff. Instead, the pastor walks up on the stage and he asks the church a question. He says, church, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? Nobody says a word. As a matter of fact, Redmond talks about how awkward the silence was and how long it lasted. That was it. That was the sermon for the morning. It was a question. What are you bringing as your offering to God? And then Redmond says, eventually, the silence was broken as songs and prayers began to break out among the people. It was from reflecting on this moment that a song was written. Listen to these words. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. That's what he's doing. He's looking into each of us. And then he wrote, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Friends, you know what I think Jesus was doing that day in the temple? He was helping them prepare for the fact that it wasn't about that temple. It wasn't about their priestly rule, their religious leaders. It wasn't about all those practices that they put in place. It wasn't about a religion at all. You know what it was about? 
It was about the one who was standing in the middle of that court, running all those animals out there. Listen, it was a huge spectacle. It was absolute chaos, but it got every single person's attention that was at the temple that day. Friend, is Jesus trying to do that today with some of our hearts? Is he trying to make that kind of spectacle? Because that's what we need to wake up and realize that we've made worship about us instead of about him. Friend, what does he want to cleanse in you today? He's not looking for a building. He's looking for bodies that will bring him glory every day as they walk after Jesus. Friends, will you come back to this type of worship that's all about Jesus. I don't know what's going on. If you need to pray, listen, this altar's open. If you need to pray with me or any of our staff, we're going to be right back there in that lobby. If you need to give your life to Jesus, realizing that you were made to be a temple that housed the very presence of God. Friends, listen, he died for you and he'd love to show you how he can begin new life in you today. Listen, we'll be back there. You come find us. But more than that, you just spend some time with God today because maybe all of us need to say, God, I'm sorry for the thing I've made it, when really it's all about you.